Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. So, June 4th, not June 4th, May 4th, <laughs> I'm anticipating, May 4th, 1919, was just about exactly 100 years ago. We are coming up to the 30th anniversary of June 4th. Got a lot to talk about. There are other anniversaries this year, but I don't think we'll get as far as those. Um, the panel lists have come from considerable distances. Louisa wins the prize. She arrived this morning from Hong Kong. Um, Let's hope I stay awake. Jeff, Jeff came in from California and Denise from New Haven. So we've got quite a spread here. We also have a historical spread. Denise will start with history. Louisa will talk current events. And Jeff, I'm told, is going to talk about Joshua Wong. And I should have said who I am, although I think you can tell because the tent card is here. I'm Margot Landman with the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. And we are extremely grateful to the NYU Law School U.S.-Asia Law Institute for welcoming us here because it quickly became very apparent that we were going to have way more people than we could accommodate in our conference room. So Ira and others, thank you very much. And with that, I will turn it over to Denise, who is going to get us started. Thanks so much. I actually realized that I managed to load this, but I don't know if I know how to manipulate it. So OK, all right, we'll just do that. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. And thank you to the National Committee and to Jeff for inviting me. Um, I think I've been asked to participate in this panel for a couple of reasons. First, in a previous position, I taught at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, so I had a chance to write about the umbrella movement. And Jeff will be talking more about student movements in his remarks. And second, I'm starting a new research project now on the history of the border between Hong Kong and China, a book I'm tentatively calling Cross-Border Relations. So I've been spending a lot of time thinking about borders and their historical context, and that's what I'll be talking about today. Um, this slide, in case you're curious, is from the border in 1951. Um, but thinking about borders today, here are two images from recent trips to China. On the upper left, um, you see a view of Hong Kong from Shenzhen Bay Park last summer. And on the, um, on the lower right, you see a view of Shenzhen. Um, I promise Shenzhen is there um, <laughs> through the haze um, from a lookout which is due north of the Hong Kong Wetland Park. And this was just about a month ago, where beyond the foliage on the right, there is the same marine police post where oyster farmers on both sides of Deep Bay would make reports um, or make complaints to the police in the 1960s and 1970s. 
but you didn't come here today to hear about oyster farmers. Um, so instead, I'd like to take this image of a border to talk about borders in Hong Kong being both literal and metaphorical. And I want to extend them to this, the idea of the greater Bay Area. Part of my argument today is that the literal and metaphorical borders have throughout history shifted, and each time they do, there is a lot at stake for those oyster farmers and for all of us. So I wanted to start, establish a baseline and talk about uh, the Greater Bay Area and how it's defined. Um, here um, are some galleries from an exhibition that I went to in Shenzhen recently, and I'm told this is up through uh, this fall. It's entitled, A Great Tide Surge Along the Pearl River, 40 Years of Reform and Opening um, in Guangdong Province. And it's a fascinating exhibit. I suggest you visit it if you have a chance in Hong Kong or if, you're, um, if you happen to be in Shenzhen, because it's the party's own take on its development. And also because it's interesting to think about how Hong Kong is always part of the story in the exhibition from the very beginning when you have letters, people writing um, letters between Baan County and Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is always there at the edges, and then it gets invited back in these galleries to be part of the Greater Bay Area, which is Beijing's plan to provide greater links among uh, Hong Kong, uh, Macau, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, Zhuhai, and other cities in South China. Today, the population of the Greater Bay Area includes uh, 70 million people, about 5% of China's total. It accounts for 12% of China's GDP. It has three of the world's top container points, um, and Shenzhen, I believe, eclipsed Hong Kong in 2013 or 2004 in terms of shipping volume. And it's also hub, their hubs for uh, transportation, air and rail, tourism, and research and development. And one of the big symbols of this Greater Bay Area is the Hong Kong Zhuhai Macau Bridge, which you see in the exhibition. But if the rhetoric behind the Greater Bay Area is all about establishing interconnections and crossing borders, some of the most controversial flashpoints um, in Hong Kong over the past few years has been about this anxiety over the persistent erasure of borders. Or another way to think about this, or another way to put it, is to think that Hong Kong's most pressing concern has been the preservation of its distinctiveness, political borders, cultural borders, and economic borders. And when these controversies pop up, they reveal that anxiety, they reveal that concern at a most fundamental level. Examples include um, the September 2018 opening of West Kowloon Station, uh, reported on by Chris Chung, mm -hmm. who I just met um, yeah. for the Hong Kong Free Press. Um, and the, uh, the controversy here is that this train station in Hong Kong territory was ceded to uh, China to streamline immigration. Uh, um, also more recently, there was the protest over the extradition law in Hong Kong, tens of thousands of people protesting against a proposed law that would allow someone in Hong Kong, even someone in transit, to be extradited to China for criminal trial. Um, without diminishing the concern that these controversies bring into sharp relief, I want to point out two things. First that these kinds of controversies exist in a larger ge geographical context and a larger historical context. For example, um, as the ar architectural historian Max Hirsch at Hong Kong U has shown, the idea of this kind of checkpoint is not new. The first co-located checkpoint was in Shenzhen Bay, um, the picture that you saw in my, the first of my fieldwork photos, 
in which the border checkpoint is lo physically located in Shenzhen, legally located in Hong Kong. The bridge that you saw in the picture, the big white bridge, the structure that anchors it to the sea floor is PRC, legal jurisdiction. The surface where the cars drive across is Hong Kong <laughs> territory. So you have a bigger geographical <laughs> context for this. And also that these controversies exist in a larger historical context. Um, police historians uh, Lawrence Ho and Yu Kong Chu explain how in the 1950s, Hong Kong's special branch secretly deported criminals from Hong Kong by deposing them at sea. One method was to hire these long-gowned underworld types to arrange for a boat to take the deportees to Mears Bay, where deportees would be dumped on a beach in China with a loaf of bread and a few cigarettes. Um, <laughs> here is a remembrance from an oral history from Policeman Chan, um, who says, uh, remembering his early career, I felt uncomfortable whenever I received orders to escort criminals. No matter who they were, we had to witness their abandonment in the remote areas near the Chinese border. Once they went ashore, they might be arrested or shot by the mainland's military personnel. Besides, a few of them were female criminals, and we didn't want to think about what would have happened to them. Fortunately, the Hong Kong government yielded to international pressure and abolished its practice of criminal deportation soon afterwards. So this is something that happened 60 years ago. But I think it's important to note because it highlights two things. One is that something remains the same, which is that you have one country and two systems. Um, and the mainland's legal system or the mainland system is something that this policeman is very reluctant to abandon someone to, whoever he or she is. But the second thing about this quote is that there is something that has changed, which is that international pressure means very little in the face of a rising China, which is hopefully something we can address in Q&A. In the time I have remaining, I want to make a few remarks about historical connections in the Pearl River Delta. Um, so the greater area, not unlike one belt, one road, is a convenient historical reference for China's ambitions. But the Pearl River Delta is still significant as a historical and cultural unit of understanding. Here's a map. Um, um, it's not a very good map, but it's a map from a 1902 pamphlet entitled Hong Kong to Canton by the Pearl River. And so Hong Kong is there on the lower right. Uh, Nanto, the old city wall, um, in Bowen County is there as well. Um, we can think of the Pearl River Delta as both a port and the site of an important border. As a port, it's a site for immigration, it's an entrepot center for business, and it's a place of refuge, both economical and political. As a border, there's certainly restrictions, um, but I want to what I want to show in my research is the ways in which the borders um, and the restrictions change over time, especially since 1949. But even though you have these restrictions, the Pearl River Delta remains a site of migration, trade, and refuge. And here the key takeaway is this. The Pearl River Delta, as the predecessor to the Greater Bay Area, has benefited from these boundaries, from being a state of exception. So one way to think about the Hong Kong and China border is both literal and metaphorical, not only what it restricts, but what it allows. We think about borders as things that stop people from doing things, but actually having two states of, of um, existence creates opportunities as well. So boundaries create conditions for some to flourish, and officials on both sides recognize this, and that's why they allow for the porousness. There's a shared historical and cultural experience on both sides of the borders. Um, 
So what I want to encourage you to think about is when we think about the Pearl River Delta or the Greater Bay Area, who benefits by having these states of exception or these borders and restrictions? And how are those benefits shared? Um, and then if we take one big step back and think about the current relationship, the title of this panel, Hong Kong Shifting Status, increasing connectedness is not something that is really new. But I think that there is something new that's happening. Um, if there's a shift in historical and cultural experience, first of all. Unlike the immediate post-war, the decades of my parents' generation in Hong Kong, there have been at least two generations who've grown up under vastly different conditions. So if we think about that post-war post generation as having the exper shared experience, um, we have three generations. One experienced high socialism, while the other experienced Hong Kong's takeoff as a little dragon. Another one experienced the opportunity of the reform era, while the other experienced decolonization and democratization. And you have a final generation today which experiences China's rise while the other side uh, experiences Hong Kong's decline. So uh, there's also a change in the, in the answer to the question, who benefits and how is it shared? In the first and second generation, I would argue, the border presents a kind of opportunity, um, whether for people fleeing Hong Kong or for Hong Kongers who went to China to make its economic miracle. Now the question is, if, if we think about what does the border mean today, I think it no longer means the same kinds of opportunities. The year after the Hong Kong's umbrella protest, this open letter went viral on the Chinese internet. It was a letter entitled, Hong Kong, Please Forget Me. Um, and in this case, um, the young writer talks about how he gave up his chance to take on Hong Kong permanent residency and go back. He says, um, I felt cramped without anywhere to put my energies like it was time the dreams of my youth. I hope we all have a bright So future. thank you all for coming um, out So today. if I could hazard it's a rough conclusion, I'd say that the building of the Greater Bay Area will be hard, but it will be harder still if we fail to understand first that boundaries have historically created opportunities for beneficiaries. And, and also two, talk about the consequences that we cannot pay attention for, uh, to and power freedom of speech and media freedom. Um, I've been based much. in Hong Kong for the last few months. I'm also writing a book about Hong Kong. Um, so I've been having a lot of conversations with various people uh, about the current situation. And so I'm also going to talk a bit about the mood there right now. So uh, the most important uh, turning point that we've seen is uh, recently this uh, political trial of the Umbrella Nine, the key leaders of the Umbrella Movement, who in the last few weeks have been found guilty and sentenced to jail um, of public order offences. And these include some very arcane offences, including the incitement to incite public nuisance, which is a charge so sort of obscure and arcane that apparently it's unconstitutional in other common law regimes. Um, so in the last couple of weeks, we've seen in Hong Kong this, the sight of um, some of these Umbrella Nine actually going to jail including very well-respected figures like uh, Benny Tai, a law professor from HKU, and Chang Kun Man, a sociology professor from CUHK, who each got 16 months in prison. And, you know, the pictures of them, uh, you know, wearing handcuffs and, and going to prison have been quite um, breathtaking, I think, for Hong Kongers. Um, and just before his sentence, I, I have a podcast called The Little Red Podcast, and we interviewed Chan Kim just before the verdict. 
And he said that he had been prepared for this for, for quite a while. He said it's almost like a must for society to go through this while fighting for democracy. And I would say since the end of the Umbrella Movement, there has been a whole rash of political sentences, which I think people haven't really noticed because they've happened in a piecemeal fashion. So I'm just going to tell you what the numbers are. So uh, until today, the, since the um, end of the Umbrella Movement in 2014, there have been 48 cases against 32 pro-democracy leaders. Uh, we've seen 34 convictions, six disqualifications from LegCo, and 18 prison sentences. Of those, uh, 20, there were 22 cases against 16 different LegCo members. And uh, a lot of those were 14 proceedings for acts of um, acts or speech made while serving as LegCo members. And some of those have been for quite uh, interesting offences. Uh, the ones that I think spring to mind, uh, a legislator called Chan Chung Tai from Civic Passion was convicted of desecrating flags after he turned, they had these little um, Hong Kong SIR and PRC flags on the tables. He turned them upside down and he was found guilty of desecrating the flag. Um, another legislator, Albert Chan from People Power, was convicted of obstructing police, and that was after he burnt a replica of the Chinese white paper on One Country, Two Systems in a demonstration outside the China Liaison Office. And then um, the case that you may have heard of, very well-known case, which is working its way up the system is an activist called Avery Ng, who was found uh, guilty of assault for throwing a tuna fish sandwich during a demonstration. <laughs> so these are the kind of cases that are working their way through the system. And um, we're begin begin beginning to see what uh, Nathan Law, the young uh, former legislator, he was the youngest legislator in Hong Kong, but he was disqualified over oath-taking, He's, he said it, he calls it a dual city, uh, a city where economic freedoms are until now protected, but political freedoms not so much so. And the big question is, you know, how long is that kind of system sustainable? Uh, other major developments that we've seen, and Denise mentioned the extradition bill, uh, 130,000 people took to the streets. Uh, that was the biggest protest uh, since the Umbrella Movement. And... Um, Today, the US-China Economic and Security Review Commission just issued uh, a, a report on it saying that that law poses a serious risk for US national security. Um, I would say that uh, society is extremely split about these things. It's very divided, and that's an issue that also makes Hong Kong very hard to govern, that, that there are... Uh, along general, generational lines, major, major splits. Uh, as Denise talked about the rail terminus uh, for the high-speed rail linking Hong Kong and China, that opened, and uh, mainland law applies in certain areas of the terminus. We also saw the banning of a party, a pro-independence party, which is a major blow for freedom. If you think about press and media freedom in, in this kind of atmosphere, there's been a massive knock-on effect, and the Journalists Association just released this survey. 81% of journalists said that uh, the situation had worsened <coughs> since last year. Um, particular issues was the fact that the uh, 
Financial Times journalist Victor Mallet had his visa uh, denied. Uh, he had been the president of the Foreign Correspondents Club and he had hosted a talk by Andy Chan, the convener of the band National Party, and then his visa was de declined. Um, and the Journalists Association survey also found that one in five journalists said they were <coughs> under pressure not to report about pro-independence or parties and sentiments. So that <coughs> self-censorship, which is been present for a long time, it seems to be uh, escalating and we're seeing outright censorship. And there was a particular case that was very worrying when um, uh, the, a lot of media organizations reported on comments from the Chinese propaganda chief and then the China Liaison Group office got involved and told them to delete or change the story and lots of people did. So again, this is the kind of really overt uh, pressure that it is beginning to be seen. Um, when it comes to press freedom, uh, there's also been a, a shift, I think, in the role of the pro-Beijing newspapers like the Dagongbao and the Wenwei Bo, which are much more being used as attack dogs. Um, over the last couple of years, there have been cases where there was a case where uh, so-called reporters infiltrated the election campaign of the politician Li Zhekian, and then there have been a lot of uh, cases where pro-democracy politicians and activists um, have have been followed or attacked by people, so-called reporters, and there have been a lot also increasing numbers of cases even about foreigners so uh the american academic kevin carico has been um making front uh, making headlines um but another less noticed case was that of a malaysian politician called lee kaidun who came to hong kong for a community empowerment seminar and then read about his exploits in the newspaper that apparently accused him of visiting hong kong to set up a separatist training camp in malaysia um, and he said he couldn't, you know, this kind of thing was completely beyond his imagination. Newspaper, uh, the pro-Beijing newspapers were also accused of breaking election laws during last year's local elections when they ran a front page advert for a pro-Beijing candidate on election day. And I think people are looking very carefully at the precedent set in Taiwan where there was a, a very active social media disinformation campaign in the election last year and wondering what will come next in Hong Kong. Uh, journalists have received um, threats and harassment um, and there have been all kinds of very clear threats to press freedom. Uh, when it comes to the freedom of speech and academic endeavor I think there are also increasing worries on that front. Um, at HKU, I was recently part of a panel on Tiananmen, and uh, it was interesting. It, it went ahead and loads of people came, but I think there were some interesting discussions about, uh, there were worries about whether it would go ahead. There were concerns from Chinese students about whether they should attend, whether they should ask questions, whether there would be repercussions. Um, and I think, again, this is a sign of the sort of closed discursive spaces of China being moved into Hong Kong classrooms. Uh, and of course, the big question that everybody uh, asked and that someone actually articulated at that panel was how much longer will we be able to have such panels in Hong Kong?
Um, and I'm just going to end uh, with some comments on mood. Uh, I've had two very interesting analogies, both corporeal analogies, talking about Hong Kong's mood lately. So one of the adjectives that you hear time and time again is tired. People talk about how tired Hong Kong people are, this fatigue. And in our podcast, when um, we talked to Chan Kin Man, he mentioned this uh, syndrome that affects young asylum seekers in Sweden, after, uh, children of asylum seekers. Uh, some, it's this very unusual syndrome where when asylum seekers have their asylum claims turned down, uh, their children practically become catatonic. They can't, they just lie there, they, they don't move, they don't eat, they can't speak. And it's called resignation syndrome. And that was what he compared Hong Kong people to. He said, and this is a quote, he said, um, uh, Hong Kong people have resignation syndrome. They've been hoping for democracy for so long, and then you know the reality is hard to take. And the other um, interesting uh, metaphor that I heard was in discussions with a political scientist called Ray Yep and uh, at City University. And when he talked about Hong Kong, he said, right now, Hong Kong is in a defensive crouch. It's defending its freedoms as best it can for as long as it, it can. <coughs> And I think that's uh, where I'll stop now and <laughs> pass over to Jim. Thank you. So it's a great pleasure to be here, and I want to thank the National Committee uh, for doing this. It's an organization I admire. I admire particularly the, uh, the public intellectual program that's trying to connect people from the worlds of um, academia, where I come from, and journalism. Louisa comes from and um, have those kinds of conversations and collaborations that I've learned so much from from um, journalists over the years. I'm delighted to be on a panel with these two particular people. Denise um, and I co-wrote something right as the Umbrella Movement was beginning, uh, before it was even called the Umbrella Movement, um, and then she was good enough to join me after I'd gone to observe part of the Umbrella Movement on Skyping into a class I was teaching on global crises back in um, in the US. And Louisa and I have been talking about um, Tiananmen for a very long time with that anniversary coming up and once co-wrote something as well. So it's great. I knew I would learn things from them. The challenge is to come up with other things to say. Um, one thing I wanted to say is it was very nice, as some of you know, your local paper published a piece by me this last weekend. And I also thought you might be gratified to know that actually the New York Times is read in many parts of the world, I discovered. I got emails from all over the place. It was really delightful to see that um, reaction. Um, I also benefited from a wonderful editor um, who actually came up with some of the lines that were most often tweeted when people praised my piece. <laughs> and also criticized sometimes when they praised the, when they talked about the piece. And I'll just mention one of them, because I think this, this she was summing up things that I was saying, but coming up more concisely. And I was talking about where does the May 4th spirit live? Where does the May 4th spirit live? The, the Communist Party claims to represent the May 4th spirit. But they're doing all kinds of things that are unlike the May 4th spirit. They claim that they reduce it to just patriotic nationalism of a certain sort. They leave out the anti-autocratic side. They leave out the openness to all kinds of ideas coming from different parts of the world. They leave out the taking to the streets, um, student-led activism. And part of that, um, that spirit, if you want to see where it's alive, you have to look to other places. I mentioned Hong Kong um, in the piece. 
You could also say um, Taiwan um, as, as a place that's there. But she summed up some of this to say what you seem to be saying is if the student protesters in 1919 were against the warlords, and now the current regime is acting like them, the warlord spirit is back in, in Beijing. And it's a great line that I wish I could simply take, take credit for it, but she summed it up there. Um, which then led to uh, both praise and criticism by some, some commentators on social media that said what they think of the world is they think called weak China. China is strong. They said that's not the point, in that it is a strong China. And of course, Xi Jinping isn't just like the warlords, though there was a warlord who in 1915 wanted to make himself emperor. He was president and he presented himself as an emperor, Yuan Shikai, whose name was banned on the internet for a time after. Um, after Xi Jinping did away with term limits, because I wasn't the only one who noticed that. <laughs> and actually, 1919, the protests of May 4th, the 100th anniversary just, just, just passed, but actually protest movements almost always have precursors, the biggest of them. So there was a, a prequel to the 1919 protests. One of them were 1915 protests against Yuan Shikai giving in to the Japanese, and then against Yuan Shikai setting himself up as emperor. 1989 had a precursor, 1986 protests in Shanghai, which I talk about a lot because I was there and I wasn't at uh, 1989. But Hong Kong, of course, the umbrella movement was preceded two years before by uh, the protests against national education that um, people like Joshua Wong got their first taste of student activism uh, and then were ready to do more in 1989 in the same way Wang Dan, who is going to be part of the Tiananmen panel with Louisa and me at Harvard, was active in organizing things on campus to get a sense of, of how to protest. Not in 86, but in 88 and early 89. Some of the protesters in 89 had taken part in 86. So these, these things don't come out of, out of nowhere. I quoted a tweet by Joshua Wong in, um, um, in the New York Times piece where he tweeted um, just elegantly three numbers. 2014, 1989, 1919. And then he had three photographs of the umbrella movement, of the 1989 protests, and of May 4th. Now, one interesting thing about this, an irony of the May 4th movement being, the May 4th spirit being alive in Hong Kong now, is this is exactly the moment when some young activists in Hong Kong are resisting the idea of being thought of as folded into Chinese history want to be seen as having a kind of independent um, entity. There are some questions about whether the vigil for 1989 should be a big event, whether there should be more local. And so even as there are local, local identity is so important, um, there's a representing of, of, of the Chinese spirit. And so I think um, it's fine. As a historian, I can say May 4th is more alive on Hong Kong in Hong Kong than on the mainland, whether or not people in Hong Kong claim it. I can just compare it. But Joshua Wong's Putting those three together, I thought, was very telling. I presented this on Friday at Irvine at a conference on May 4th, 100 years later, and a very smart um, graduate student from Hong Kong put up his hand and said, yeah, that's really interesting. Joshua did that on Twitter. He's very savvy. He knows an international audience reads Twitter. He also has a Facebook page. He didn't put that kind of image up on the Facebook page, which is largely appealing to Hong Kong followers, because it would actually be seen as too um, connected to reducing a, China, a Hong Kong story 
that is fiercely its own to it folding into a China story. So that, that is very interesting as well. Um, I wanted to play off of two, um, two um, metaphors that came up and then, uh, or two images that came up in uh, my co-presenters um, talks. So Denise talked about borders that either um, get harder or softer. And um, Louisa talked about the idea of a dual city, Hong Kong being a, a dual city um, that has one kind of set of rules and freedoms related to economic activity, and then tighter controls on political activity. So the um, thinking of anniversaries, this is later this year, the anniversary um, that people around the world will be talking about, 30th anniversary, after we've had all the discussion of, um, of the 1989 in China, 30th anniversary of the massacre. It'll be the 30th anniversary of um, the end of the most famous iconic border, uh, arguably in the world, the Berlin Wall. When the Berlin Wall was up, Berlin was a dual city with one kind of rules on one side of, of the wall and another kind of rules on the other. On one side of the wall, there was more economic freedom and there was also more political freedom than on the other side of the wall. That wall made it clear you knew, um, you knew on one side of the wall was a small <coughs> island of um, relative freedoms or a great deal of freedom compared to the other side of the wall um, there was part of a large Communist Party run land in which um, there were very, very limited freedoms. Hong Kong before 1997 was a small outpost of many kinds of freedom, not pure, not democratic freedom, but a lot of freedom of speech, a lot of freedom of assembly, um, a lot of economic freedom. After 1997, the question became, the hope early on, was that some of the norms and um, ways of being in Hong Kong would spread into the communist mainland on the other side. And the early hopeful things, we looked at things like Nanpan Zhou Mo, uh, the media over in South China, we said there, there are hopeful signs that some of the, the ways of, of Hong Kong would be spreading over to the mainland. This was at a time when Berlin had um, been melded together into one city, and it was the norms largely of West Berlin that flowed into East Berlin and across that large communist mainland. And one way to think about the sadness of the, 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 what's happening in Hong Kong was far from an idea of the flow being from this city that had become the freest part of the People's Republic of China when it became uh, part of it over into other places, because the flows have been overwhelmingly in the other direction overwhelmingly in the sense that, if anything, it's been a kind of East Berlinization of the former West Berlin. And if there's a dual city now, the dualness only exists or increasingly largely exists on the economic, economic side. Now, one way a critic could say about this is, well, um, come on, um, Hong Kong never had freedom. It had a colonial period. And then it had this post-colonial period with a different kind of colonial uh, structure. And that's true. But then that's another example of where Beijing is now replaying the role of exactly the kinds of figures that the protesters of 1919 claimed to hate, which were colonial people in a distant capital that were trying to exert control 
over a place um, place far from them. So that's one kind of uh, uh, way of, I've, I've found productive, interesting. There are problems with it, but interesting to um, think about in terms of that when we think of anniversaries. Um, finally, since um, Louisa brought up um, metaphors, analogies, including corporal ones, one of the ones that um, I keep coming back to, to Hong Kong is dying. It's, and something is dying. A very particular Hong Kong is dying. Um, and that's one way to do it. But whenever I think of it as, as dying, then, and I think finally the story of resistance might be over, there are quite extraordinary things. And after the umbrella, um, after the umbrella uh, sentencing, I thought, well, the idea was that was to have a chilling effect on taking to the streets. And then there was a big protest. And so if we think of that, I thought, so I, I, I figured after, after these two excellent presentations, what could I do that they hadn't done? So I thought neither of them had really told a joke, so I told the joke about the local paper. And neither of them quoted poetry. So I thought I'd end with a, just a line from a poem that I keep coming back to um, with the thought of Hong Kong dying. And that's um, Dylan Thomas's Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, but Rage, Rage Against the Dying of the Light. I think there's something incredibly inspiring about the Hong Kong story. No matter how much the odds are stacked against it, no matter how many reasons there are um, for giving up, there is a, um, a very determined spirit there that, against all odds, um, seems not ready to go gentle into that good night. or pessimistic. You don't have to answer. Um, thank you to all three of you for wonderful, thought-provoking presentation.